Welcome back to the Golden Age of Optimism. I'm John Harmon. I'm the author and the musician, Chill in Brazil, on all music platforms. I want to remind people that are listening, I'm putting my books in audio form. So the episodes go in chronological order, one, two, three, four, and so on. So it's not the last episode that you really want to listen to if you're interested in hearing the reading of the whole book. We're continuing with Sitting on a Log, my autobiography. The next morning, I overslept and heard a knock on the room door. One of my roommates opened the door, and it was Leilani. I got out of bed and hurried to get dressed. She had on shorts, as, as usual, a flower in her hair, two big lays around her neck, one white and one red. Before we got in the car, she took off the red lay and put it around my neck and gave me a kiss. We drove up the coast, and she showed me the big surf area of Waimea Bay. We stopped there at some little restaurant and, and ate. We then went another few miles up the coast, and she said she wanted to show me the waterfalls. We parked, and there were six or so other cars parked at the same spot. We hiked up the trail for about two miles to the falls. It was a beautiful place. Some people were swimming in the water and also jumping off the rocks into the pools. We hung out there for a little while, and then she, she said she wanted to take me to a really private place that most people didn't know about. We hiked back down the trail for about half a mile or maybe a little more, and then there was a very small path that if you didn't notice it, you would walk right past it. And it was sort of overgrown with vines and stuff, and really you wouldn't even know there was a path there unless you knew there was a path there. So we turned and we hiked down that path through the tropical forest for about another mile and then came to maybe a 100-yard clearing that opened up in front of us. The sunlight shone down on the clearing and revealed to me what was just an amazing sight. There were rocks set in piles around the rocks were literally thousands and thousands of fresh-cut flower lays piled on them and all around them. I wanted to walk down the path to let in there. It was so beautiful. But just as I started to move, Leonie grabbed my arm, and she said forcefully, No, you can't go in there. This is a burial ground for the royal Hawaiians. You are not Hawaiian. If I let you go in there, it will bring out bad spirits and bad things could happen to us. I'm not sure I should have even taken you here, she said. I looked at her, sort of astonished and quizzical because I didn't really know what she meant and I didn't have any superstitions, but at the same time, I respected her feeling. I asked, where do all the flowers come from? There are so many of them, Leilani. She said, people come early in the morning and bring the flowers. They have done it for hundreds of years. 
Now wait here and promise me you won't move. She leaned over and she gave me a kiss on the cheek. Now take your lay off and put it around my neck. So I did that. I nodded my head and slowly removed the lay that she had given me earlier and put it around my, her neck. I stood there and watched as she headed down the path on her own. She walked very slowly, taking gentle steps, and followed a route that must, she must have only knew around some of the piles of rocks to a place very near the center where there was a very large mound of rocks. The sunlight reflected off her hair and it almost seemed like there was a spotlight on her from the sun above. I was transfixed and felt like I was sitting in an audience at some time and place far, far away. She knelt down. She stayed that way for maybe two, three, four, five minutes. I don't know. I, I couldn't tell how much time she was kneeling there. And then she took off the lace that she had around her neck and very carefully placed them on the rocks. She said something, I don't know what, and then she very slowly walked back to where I was and took my hand and said, okay, we need to leave now, and whatever you do, do not look in back of you. We started to walk back away from the graveyard, holding hands. Suddenly, the tropical jungle seemed like it was buzzing with sounds. The birds, the birds were singing. They were going crazy and darting all around us. I felt like there were footsteps following us, but I kept my eyes forward. I got a little scared, and she took my hand and held on tight, and she led the way back down to the main path. By now, it was around 1 or 2 o'clock. I don't exactly know, but time sort of just was frozen, and I felt like I was lost in some magical but strange dream. When we got to the car, she told me she was going to take me to another spot on the other side of the island and I could meet some more of her relatives. We stopped about halfway up and bought some snacks, gum, and she bought a bunch of gum and candies. It took over an hour and we drove around to a place on the opposite side of Waikiki. We turned right onto another road and drove up the road for at least two miles or so in the direction of the mountains. On our right side were some very nice homes, a development or something, and on our left there were sugarcane fields, and then a little further up there were big groves of banana trees. We turned left onto a dirt road away from the area of the nice homes and followed that dirt road for about half a mile or so. At the end of the road, there was a small settlement with sort of ram, shackle, shacks, pigs, chickens, and a lot of barefoot kids running about. Everyone knew Leilani, and the kids ran over to the car to see the Howley with her. That was me, the Howley. One of her aunts lived there, and we stayed for only an hour or so, and, and we ate some food with them. 
Leilani had brought a bunch of candy and gum that we bought earlier, and she passed it out to the kids. These people were poor, very poor. It was surprising to me that right on the other side of the road, there were large and lavish homes in this sort of gated community. We left, and Leilani said she was going to take me to see her uncle, who was a kahuna. She explained that a kahuna was a Hawaiian priest and that he was one of the people that had gone out on the catamaran the day of the festival to open the festival. Directly across the road, there was a gated townhome complex with a guard in the front. The guard was a big Hawaiian guy and he knew Leilani. I wondered to myself why the, quote, priest, unquote, lived in a gated townhome complex and his relatives lived across the street in basically shacks. But I didn't say anything. We drove to the end of the townhome complex and Leilani parked the car. There was a large chain-link fence and a gate with a big padlock. We went over to the gate and Leilani pulled the key out of her pocket. She unlocked the gate. When we went through, she locked it again. We hiked up a winding path that followed along a stream. It was incredibly beautiful. She kept smiling at me and telling me I was really going to like this place. We walked for at least half an hour and kept steadily going up towards the steep cliffs that loomed in front of us. We could hear the splashing of a waterfall somewhere ahead. Then we came to another wooden bridge that crossed over the stream. There was no way to get to the other side unless you crossed the bridge. On the other side was a large house built mostly out of bamboo, and in back of the house there was a waterfall that fell well over a 100 feet into a big pool of water. There was a gate on our side of the bridge and a little note pinned on the gate that said, quote, went to town, be back later. Leilani looked at me and apologized. We could have easily hopped over the gate. It would have been no problem and went in, but she said that would be the wrong thing to do. We sat down for a while and talked and waited to see if the kahuna would come back, but he didn't. So we went back to the car and we left. On the way back, she told me the story of the big court battle that had gone on with the wealthy developer and the Hawaiians over a period of a number of years. In the end, the Hawaiians were allowed to keep the land where the banana trees were and the sugarcane and the kahuna's land. The only good part about it for her was the fact that it was impossible for any tourist to hike up to the waterfall where her uncle lived because the townhomes completely blocked the way for anyone to get in there. When we finally arrived back at my hotel, it was dark. We kissed some and said goodbye, and I thanked her for spending the day driving me around. She told me she had a lot of things to do with her family, but that she would come and see me when we left at the airport in two days. We both knew I would be going back to California shortly and she was going back to Oregon to finish school. The short time we had spent had formed a deep love and 
we both hoped that it would grow. The next day, I went with the crew. We saw the Pearl Harbor Memorial and a few other sites. I didn't tell anyone where I had been the day before. Those were very special and magical memories that I wanted to hold close to me. I felt no desire to tell anyone about them at that time. Even now, writing about those memories almost feels in a way that I am making them less special than they really were. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was in love, though maybe a little bit. I was in love with her, or that she was in love with me, though at the time we both we both felt that way. We were both actually very shy and quiet people. So when we were together, we were not carrying on lengthy conversations. There was just a beauty and a serenity in the silence. What meant the most to, I think, both her and I was the fact that she was able to share some of her culture, her feelings, and a history of a people that were victims of forced and unforced disease, genocide. It was a story and a history she knew from her soul and from her ancestors, a story that had created anger and hatred on many levels. In a way, I think she wanted to prove to herself and to her family that love had a way of healing. Soon, we were packed up and headed to the airport. Leilani was not there, and I felt disappointed, but I also was happy to be going home. I had never worked so hard in all my life. I had about $1,600 for almost the four months of constant work. It was nice to be part of such a big event, and even nicer that I was able to grow some as a person, I believe. I was able to experience some things that, as a, just as a tourist, I, I would surely have never experienced. I had some golden memories that I would keep forever. The fragrant flowers, the warm tropical air, and behind it all, an experience that ingrained in my heart magical feelings about a culture that really cherished peace. And that's what I wanted in my life. But little did I know how quickly things would and could change. Chapter 6, The Fallen Log. I was back at my parents' house, and it was the middle of July by now. I went over to the Santa Monica Junior College and enrolled again in some classes for the fall semester. I went to the beach a few times and saw some of my friends and played volleyball. I didn't feel much like going in the water because it was just too cold compared to the water in Hawaii. I did some work for a mason that was working on one of my dad's projects, but that only lasted for a few weeks. I was sitting at home and decided to call Mike because I hadn't seen him in a long time. He was at home and it was late afternoon. He told me to come down and see him. I drove over to his house near the beach and picked him up. I was driving the cream-colored yellow old Oldsmobile I had received when my dad had bought a new car for my mom. Mike looked pretty bad. He had grown a beard and his hair was really long. 
I had cut my hair before I went to Hawaii. I'd let it grow there a little bit, but when I got back from Hawaii, I cut it shorter than I ever had for a long time, and I sort of liked having short hair at that point. We drove down to the beach and sat in the car as the sun set. I was telling Mike about my experience in Hawaii, but he seemed distant and not really that interested. He told me he was leaving in a week to go back over there. He had been saving money all summer and decided he was going to live permanently in Maui. He had a big black marker on him. At some point, he left the car and went to over where the concrete block refreshment stand was and the bathrooms were. He decided to write something on the wall. I don't know why. I have no idea why. But right at that moment, a police car came up, and the next thing I knew, they had him in handcuffs. I sort of slumped down in the seat of my car so they wouldn't see me. They wrote him up some ticket and then left. He came back to the car and started laughing. For the first time in a long time, he, write, he reminded me of the Mike I had met five years earlier in the eighth grade. He was all smiles and jokes. He tore up the ticket and threw it out the window as we drove back home. He was leaving to go to Hawaii, and I think, I think he knew at that point he wasn't coming back. Six months later, I got a call from his older brother, Harry, and he told me that Mike had died on the streets in Maui. He had run out of money and overdosed on drugs. We didn't talk long on the phone, and I don't even think it was any great surprise to either Harry or I. I didn't feel any emotions, really, because I knew it had happened at some point along the way, and... He had surfed the big ones, and he lived the way he wanted to live. Maybe he could have lived a few more years with the leukemia. Maybe not. I don't know. Either way, I said some prayers for him over the next few weeks. I had kept his secret in school, and so I kept his secret after he died. But his memory still lives on with me. School started, and I decided to go out for the volleyball team at the junior college, but I was a bit out of shape and hadn't played very much. I worked hard at it, but before the season started, I decided to quit because I knew I wasn't going to be able to work as hard as I really wanted to. I was working part-time doing construction for one of my father's contractors, going to classes and participating in the Buddhist meetings at night two or three days a week. The big push in the Buddhist organization was for a convention to be held to coincide with America's bicentennial, July 4th of 1976. They were going to put a lot of events on in New York and surrounding cities. I wanted to be part of it, but there was no way this time I was going to take off classes because I needed to get my AA degree and I was going to apply for UCLA. I already felt like I was behind in my education. The Buddhist group was forming a marching band made up of the young men's division. I had played the trombone for one year when I was in the sixth grade, so I told them I would join the band. I went to the music shop and found a fairly good slide trombone. I started to practice in, outside in our garage. It took a few months but I was able to get back to reading a little music and playing some of the songs. With the slide trombone, you really only had to mark the slide positions under the notes, and that made it a lot easier.
We practiced every weekend. I was getting tired of staying at my parents' house, but I really had little choice because I didn't have much money. I was waiting for a lawsuit I had filed from the motorcycle accident to come through, but that just seemed to drag on and I had no idea when it was going to settle. I was not interested too much in dating or having a girlfriend because Leilani and I had been sending letters to each other back and forth ever since I returned from Hawaii. She told me about life at the university. She liked going to school there because the people were friendly and she was away from the prying eyes of her family in Hawaii. The letters came every three weeks or so. I would write her and then she would write me back. Early in December, I wrote her and told her that I would drive up to visit her. But a week later, she told me that was not a good idea because she was going to Hawaii over the Christmas break. She sent me some photos and a letter from Hawaii. Then when she returned to school, the letters started coming less and less. I wrote her and told her I would try to go up there over her spring break, but then I had to write her back again because I found out my spring break and hers did not coincide. After that, there were bigger gaps between the letters. At one point, I must have written three or four letters to her with no response. It was the middle of May, and I was hoping that I could go up there to visit her or she could visit me when school got out. She still didn't write me back, though, and I started to get worried. It was late May on a Saturday. I'd been up early and drove the old, old Oldsmobile to the beach and went running on the sand at the beach. I did that at least three times a week and enjoyed going there early. I would run about six miles, and then I'd drive back home. When I got home, I was laying on my bed, working on a paper for school, and my mom knocked on the door. She handed me two letters. One, I could see, was obviously from Leilani, and the other, well, it didn't have a return address on it, but it was from Guam. I tried to think who I knew in Guam, and then I quickly remembered the girl I had spent that night with in Hawaii. I was trying to decide which letter to open first. And since the one from Leilani was much thicker, I had not heard from her in over a month, and I really wanted to hear from her, I decided to open that one first. Well, it was the classical, quote, Dear John, unquote, letter. No pun intended. It even included a picture of her and her fiancé. I had expected it in a way, but it was still something that you really don't expect. I was a few years younger than her, and she wanted to get married and then start a family. I had no intention of marriage or a family, but I still was very much enamored with her. I cried. I set the letter down, and then I got some paper to try and write a response I found myself just stopping and thinking about the things we had done in Hawaii, so I, I couldn't finish writing the letter. I'd completely forgotten about the other letter, sitting on my dresser table from Guam. Then I noticed it, and I opened it. It was empty, an empty letter, except for a very small picture of a baby and a small little note written on a two-inch by two-inch piece of paper. I looked at the picture of the baby and then read the note. It said, quote, 
This is your son. I am married, and he is my second child. Please do not contact me, but I want you to have a picture of him. The shock set in at that point. I climbed in bed and pulled the covers over my head. My mom knocked on the door and asked if I was all right. I said yes, and then when she left, I put both letters under my covers and kept looking at them. I didn't know what to think. Was I happy because I had made a baby? Well, sort of, but not really. Was I sad because the woman I loved was now engaged to some other man? Yes, absolutely, but that was not as much of a shock as the picture of the baby. I couldn't see any resemblance to the baby in me, but babies are babies and often don't resemble the parents. I tore up both letters and the picture into little tiny pieces. I put them in a brown paper bag and went outside and threw them in the trash. I had band practice in an hour. I left early so I could get there and practice some. I, I tried to block out what had happened. The next day I woke up and just pretended like the letters had never come. But that evening, I actually, I finished composing the letter to Leilani and I wished her the best with her life. There was not much feeling in the letter, but I thought it was the right thing to do. I was sad, but I realized sad is just part of life. A few weeks later on a Saturday, I was sent out with a group of two or three other Buddhists to proselytize at this market. This was something that they did on a regular basis to get new people to try to join the organization. I always hated doing it and attempted to avoid it whenever I could, but sometimes I went along just to appease my leaders. We were at Ralph's Market on the corner of Lincoln and Ocean Park Boulevard. I think there were three of us. Out of the market comes this very fit African woman dressed in her sweatpants she had ridden her bike and was in the process of unlocking the bike when I came up to her. She looked very interesting to me. I could tell she was African because of her accent when I started talking to her. She sort of had a British accent. I handed her a brochure and tried to convince her to come to me. She smiled at me. We talked some more and I found out she also went to Santa Monica College. She took the brochure but of course, I never expected her to call. She did call about a week later and asked what the Buddhism was all about. I picked her up and took her to a meeting of about 20 people or so. The organization was broken up into districts and chapters, with each chapter having four or five districts. The meeting did not impress her that much, but I was able to take her to a few more meetings over the next month or so. I could see she was not really that interested. She was very busy with college, and she told me she was on the track team there. Her name was Modupe Oshikoya. She was 21 years old. I had just turned 20 years old the preceding March. She was a long jumper and a 100-yard hurdler. She had won medals a few months before at the World Games for her country. She explained to me that she had been living in Washington, D.C., and that UCLA had offered her a scholarship, but that the coach from UCLA was now coaching at Santa Monica College, so he wanted her to go there first. It really didn't make a lot of sense to me, 
at first, but I, I didn't question any of it. Near the end of the school semester, she called me and invited me over for dinner. She said she was going to cook some traditional food for me. We were eating, and she also was fixing rum and cokes for us to drink. Then there was a knock on the door, and some guy from the track team showed up uninvited. He was a big guy, an African-American guy, and obviously very much enamored with Modupe. I tried to be polite, but at one point I told him he wasn't invited and he had to leave. He took offense at that and also probably felt, what was this white guy doing at the home of the girl he liked? So he went into some nutty karate routine like he was going to start fighting me. It was like out of one of those goofy karate movies. I also started, I almost started to laugh, but... I felt embarrassed for her, so I told him we should just go outside. He said, you have no right to be there with my African queen. He was getting very close to my face. I didn't move an inch, and if he made any move, I told myself I was ready, but I really wasn't. Well, you don't have any right to show up uninvited and you need to get on your bicycle and leave right now, I replied, staring him down. He backed off and then again went into some stupid karate routine like he was ready to fight. So I decided, why not do the same thing? I did some even more ridiculous karate routine from memory of some karate movie. And then he froze like a statue. He turned around and he got on his bike and he left. I went back inside and Modupe was oblivious to the whole thing. She probably thought it was funny. She cooked a really nice meal, but it was way too spicy for me, so I had to sort of grin and bear it. We drank some more rum and Cokes and then I ended up spending the night. After a few weeks, I moved in with her. We were now having a full-on relationship. I never told my parents I was moving out, and I never told them I was moving in with an African woman. I was not too sure at the time they would understand. At some point, I told them, I know, and I was living with my girlfriend and that she was on the track team. It was a single apartment and not very big, so I only took a few of my clothes and my books, of course, my school books. After a week or so of staying with her, I saw a bottle of pills on top of the refrigerator where all the vitamins were, and the bottle did not look like vitamins. I wrote down the name of them and went to my parents' house where my dad had this big medical dictionary. Sure enough, they were steroids. I went back to her place, and that evening I confronted her with the fact that those were steroids. Modupe was a very straightforward and honest person. She told me that the coach had given them to all the girls on the team and told them that they were vitamins. He told them that they had to take one twice a day. I asked her how long she'd been doing that for, and she said only for a month or so. I then told her that it was not right, it was illegal, and that the coach could be fired. Worse, I told her, was the fact that it would have a long-term effect on her body. She threw them in the trash right away. We had a long conversation about her coach, and she gave me his name. I decided to do a little research of my own. 
I found out by going to the library and looking through newspapers that were on the microfish that he had actually been the women's track coach at UCLA and the year before he had been fired because he had slept with some of the athletes. I told her later what I found out and said to her, why don't, why don't we just go up to UCLA and see if they still want you there in scholarship? I was ready to apply at UCLA. Actually, I had already applied, I think, and, and having completed enough credits at the college, so I decided I might as well go to the admissions and see how my application was doing. At the same time, she thought UCLA was like over 200 miles away because the coach at Santa Monica College had told her that. I told her it was just 10 miles up the road. The coach had been deceiving her, deceiving her for his own glory. The next day, we went to the women's athletic department at UCLA and sat down waiting for the new track coach, Pat Connolly, an ex-Olympian. She came out of her office to see us. When she walked out, she had a big smile on her face and said directly to Modupe, where have you been? We have a full athletic scholarship here waiting for you, and you just, you just never showed up. Modupe was very shy. And at that point, I think she was sort of embarrassed. So I did the talking for her and explained about the coach that had deceived her, the steroids, and the fact that Modupe was under the impression that UCLA was far away. The coach was very happy I had brought Modupe and very upset with what this ex-coach had done. So she took her into her office as I went out to the admission building to get my applications and see how they were progressing with it. Modupe started UCLA the fall of 1975 with a full scholarship. I had to wait almost another year to get admitted, but it wasn't too bad because I went ahead and got an associate arts degree at Santa Monica College in architecture. We found a bigger one-bedroom apartment in West Los Angeles that would be closer to UCLA. I finally had received the $4,000 from the motorcycle accident. My father convinced me to take a loan from the bank and put laundry machines in his apartment buildings. I'd been accepted at UCLA and was going to be able to start in the fall of 1976. I started back working for my dad's contractors over the summer and the next year finished up getting an AA at Santa Monica College. Modupe and I had a very good relationship. We were both fairly quiet people. Since she was African and I was American or white, we, we rarely went out. We worked out a lot and ran. I ran with her on the beach. She was preparing for the Olympics. The UCLA women's track team that year won the Pac-10, and they had a very strong team. In July, I was going to New York to march in a big parade for America's bicentennial. I would go down to the beach to practice my trombone because I couldn't practice in my apartment that much. Sometimes early in the morning, Modupe would come with me and go for a run. A few times, there was this guy who later I found out was Kenny G, a now famous saxophone player. And he and I would sort of improvise together on the beach. He had long black hair and man, he could blow that sax. Modupe ran track and I worked 
we didn't have a lot of time for social activities, so we stayed home at night most of the time. Plus, back in those days, it was not the greatest idea to be out in public being a mixed couple. Every once in a while, we were invited to a Nigerian or a Ghanaian party, and those were always a lot of fun. They danced until the sun came up in the morning. I was usually the only Caucasian guy at the party, but no one really cared. Those parties usually started around 10 p.m., and they just went on until dawn. Food, drinking, and dancing, they were a lot of fun. They were often hosted at some church or recreational center, and literally hundreds of people attended. Every once in a while, we went out to dinner or a movie, but we never held hands or acted too close in public. That was not a thing that couples did in her culture, and it worked out good due to the fact that we were from different races. Her father was Islamic and had five wives. So she had a lot of brothers and sisters back in Nigeria. She received a small check from the Nigerian government each month for expenses because of her fame as a track star. She was known as the queen of the African track back then. She was from one of the three major tribes in Nigeria, the Yoruba. The other two were Ibu and Hausa. Nigeria, they had constant conflicts, but the ones living in Los Angeles did not. They mixed at the parties and they got along fairly well. UCLA was on a three-semester system, so classes went by quickly. I was majoring in kinesiology. I learned to play soccer and played with the International Students Club against the other clubs and fraternities. Modupe had participated in the 1972 Olympics in Munich, Germany, when the terrorists had held a bunch of people hostage. She didn't win any medals, but now that she was trained with Pat Conley at UCLA, she was determined to improve. She focused just on the long jump. At some point, we found a bigger two-bedroom apartment for a really good price and made one room into a study room. Evelyn Ashford who was also on the track team at UCLA, came to stay with us for a while. Evelyn Ashwood became one of the greatest Olympians of all time. But back then, I just remember her as being a very, very shy girl with a nice smile. The women's track team won the Pac-10 two years in a row. Modupe had gone to the World Games in 1974 and won two silver medals, one in the 100-meter hurdles and the other in the long jump. Modupe left for Nigeria when school ended in June of 1976 to train with the Nigerian national team for the Montreal Olympics. I was planning to go to Montreal and, and see her participate. We talked on the phone once in a while, but it was very expensive, so we stuck to writing letters most of the time. She was working out very hard, and her distance was improving in the long jump. Now, unless you've ever trained with or been around an Olympic athlete, you have no idea how hard they push their bodies. It was incredible to me that anyone could work that hard. I went in the beginning of July with my Buddhist organization to participate in the American Bicentennial celebrations. I was able to visit the 
big ships that had come to New York from around the world and also go see a lot of other sites. I enjoyed my visit in New York. I had a really good time in New York. And I also was able to go to Philadelphia and see the Liberty Bell. When I returned to Los Angeles, I started listening to the news and talking with some friends from the UCLA track team. At the last minute, a bunch of African countries decided to boycott the Olympic Games for political reasons. Mo Dupe was devastated. She cried on the phone as she told me the news. I told her, just come back here and we will go do something to take your mind off it. But she said she had to go back to Nigeria with the team and make sure they were still going to pay her living expenses. Plus, she wanted to spend some time with her family. She said she would be back in a month or so. She ended up staying there almost the whole summer. I went back to doing construction work so I could save up money for the coming school year. The Buddhist organization wanted me to move up to a position of a district leader. But I refused because I told them I was in UCLA and needed to focus on school. We didn't have a lot of money, so I needed to keep working. My father paid for the tuition, but for the books, apartment, and all other expenses, those were my responsibility. I was always working some job throughout college just to make ends meet. Just before the school year started, Modupi came back to Los Angeles. She was extremely depressed and distant from me. I knew she had worked really hard and wanted to win a medal in the Olympics, but why she was so distant from me, I didn't really know. We were still living together, but after a few weeks, she said she thought it would be better if we got our own places. I was confused and sort of felt like I had done something wrong. One day she was off at school and I found a shoebox she had with letters from Nigeria. I felt guilty going through them, but two of them stuck out in my mind when I read them. One was from a year earlier, written by her mother, explaining how it was wrong that she was living with a, quote, American man, unquote. Her mother went on to explain if the government found out they would cut off her money for school and that it was just not right that Modupe would consider marriage to anyone that was not from her Yoruba tribe. The other letter was more recent and was from a Nigerian man. It was a love letter and a proposal for marriage. Modupe had been seeing this man after her disappointment with the Olympics. I was really upset. She came home and I showed her the letters. I confronted her on both issues and we argued. It was over and I knew it. I felt very hurt. But being hurt is part of life. So I packed my things that night and I moved out. I went and stayed with a friend for a few days and then I got a small single apartment in one of my father's buildings. A few months later, my father offered me a job managing a small 11-unit apartment building he had. So I took the job and then I got a free one-bedroom apartment. Modupe moved out of the apartment we had together and moved into a smaller apartment she could afford on her own. It was her last year at UCLA, and I still had another year to go for my degree. Before the end of the year, the guy she had met came out and they got married. She was pregnant. 
when she graduated, and then six months after, she had the baby, and then he left. She raised her daughter on her own and never remarried. She moved to Long Beach and would call me every once in a while when she needed some help with money. Eventually, she started coaching at Long Beach State College and then got a job as a longshoreman. Her daughter ended up going to UCLA and running track also, but she never was as accomplished as her mom. Her daughter, Boomy, married a Mexican-American guy that played on the UCLA baseball team. I had my own apartment now and sort of liked being alone. I had one more year to go at UCLA. I started working at the Pritikin Longevity Center, and that job was a good job for almost a whole year while I was going to UCLA. I got fired when I went to Japan over the Christmas break and got mixed up on the time when I was coming back. It was my fault because I should have spent the money and called my job to tell them that I was coming back one day late, but I didn't. When I showed up for work, they told me I'd been fired because I didn't show up when I said I would show up. I found another job at an after-school boys club that turned out to be a lot more of a fun job anyway. I was still practicing Buddhism, going to meetings once or twice a week, but my main focus was to do well at UCLA. I was in my last year, and the classes were the hardest ones I had taken to date. I was also trying to think what I wanted to do with my life after I graduated. A lot of people I knew were going to continue and get master's degrees, but I was pretty tired of school and didn't really want to go for two more years. One night, about halfway through the school year, I was at a Buddhist meeting, and in walked this incredibly beautiful girl. She was not part of our small district group of about 20 people. She was mixed, part black, part white, I don't really know what, but with long, curly, sort of reddish-brown hair. She was tall and very fit. We talked briefly after the meeting, and I discovered she had just graduated from ACT, American Conservatory Theater, in San Francisco. It was a famous school for the performing arts. She had moved to Los Angeles because she wanted to become an actress. I gave her my phone number, hoping she would call so I could take her out on a date. I went to another Buddhist meeting a few days later that I wouldn't usually go to, hoping she would be there, but she wasn't. I asked someone about her, and they told me she had gone to the valley or something to stay with some people she knew. I forgot about it. I didn't think much about it, and just guessed maybe I would see her again sometime in the future. When I got home that night around 10 p.m., she had left a message on my answering machine and asked me to call her. I called her back right away, feeling pretty excited at the prospect of maybe taking her on a date. She explained that she had moved in with two girls in the valley, but they had been in a big argument over how much rent she was supposed to pay and some other issues. And so she wanted to know if she could come spend a few days with me until she found another place to stay. My answer was, of course, a big, sure, no problem. I drove out to the valley late at night and picked her up with her one suitcase. When we got back to my apartment, I fixed a place on the couch for her, and we stayed up late talking. I was always a good listener, so she felt comfortable telling me about her big dreams and goals for her career in Hollywood. 
I went to bed and got up early to go to school. When I came back after school and after work, around 6 p.m., she had cleaned up my whole apartment, cooked dinner, had a bottle of wine on the table, a candle was lit, and she was dressed in a very pretty dress. I was all smiles. We ended up living together for six years. Eventually, we moved to another of my father's apartment buildings on 7th Street in Santa Monica, and I managed that building. I graduated UCLA, and I had a really hard time finding a job, so I asked my dad's business partner. It was 1980, and uh, the economy was really bad. So his business partner, Durrell, said he had some work, and I could work for him if I wanted to. I continued doing construction work for either him or my dad for almost another 30 years. Cynthia's family lived in Sacramento, and that was a good thing for me because my grandfather had moved to Paradise, California, which was about 60 miles north of Sacramento. When we went up to visit her family, I would always go and visit my grandfather. Cynthia's father was a major general in the Air Force and was in charge of McClellan Air Force Base north of Sacramento, which actually closed in 2001. He gave me a tour once of the Boeing communications spy plane. One summer, I stayed with my grandfather for three weeks and worked with him putting in an apple orchard on a five acres of land he had purchased. When his first harvest came in a few years later, some people came at night and stole all his apples. He was so upset he sold the property. He sold his small house in town, and then he moved closer to Sacramento to a town called Marysville. I worked construction, and Cynthia was able to secure a few entertainment jobs now and again, but she was getting fairly frustrated with the entertainment business. She got a job, started working with Herbie Hancock. He was one of the people that was in one of the Buddhist districts that was in our chapter, and uh, she became his secretary. And we got to know him really well. We were able to meet a lot of famous jazz musicians, go to many of his concerts for free, and hang out backstage. We also went to some of his parties, and I met Carlos Santana when he was just coming off his addiction to heroin. He weighed about 90 pounds. I met a lot of famous jazz artists. We finally decided to get married, and we had a big wedding. Herbie Hancock came and played the piano at our wedding reception. We went to the Mexican Caribbean for our honeymoon, and we had a great time. We both wanted to have a child, but we found out that she had some problems and it was not going to be possible for her to have children. She had been raped when she was 13 years old and, and contracted a bad infection. By the time she was treated for it, it left her without the ability to have children. We talked about adopting a child and started to look into that. After only about three months of marriage and over six years of a relationship, she at last came up for a big role on a sitcom television show. She had made the final selection, and it was between her and another girl that we actually knew who was also in our Buddhist organization. The producer was trying to play the casting couch game with both of them. But Cynthia, she wanted nothing to do with it. 
She felt her credentials and experience made her the right person for the role. The other actress, I guess, had fewer morals and went ahead and slept with the producer. She got the role. Everyone knew what she had done, and Cynthia was very upset when the rumor got around to us. She became very depressed, and that's when she started drinking. At first, I didn't realize she was drinking because I started work at 6 a.m., and by 10 p.m., I was in bed asleep. She would wait until I fell asleep, then she would finish a bottle of wine on her own and watch TV. I kept trying to tell her to just forget about what had happened with that role and just keep plugging away at it. I felt eventually she would get some good parts, but she just couldn't get over it. Then one night she came to bed around midnight, woke me up, and threw up red wine all over me. It was at that point I knew she had a problem. I told her she had to quit drinking and get a job, do something other than just sit around the apartment all day waiting for something to happen. She seemed to get better, but I think she was still depressed. So one weekend, we went to Laughlin, Nevada. My father's friend had a place there that he was letting us stay in. The first night was great. We went across the river to the casinos. We had a really good time dancing and gambled a little. The next day, Sunday, we planned to leave in the afternoon. I asked her if she wanted to go over to the casino again and eat at one of the buffets. She said she didn't feel that well and wanted to rest. So I told her when I came back, we would pack up and head back to Los Angeles. I was only gone for a few hours, and when I returned to the house, I couldn't find her. I looked all over the house and outside the house, but she was nowhere to be found. I was getting scared. I went inside and started to think about calling the police when I heard a moan from somewhere. I looked around, and then I realized it was from under the dining room table that had a big tablecloth over it. There she was with an empty bottle of rum, almost passed out and moaning. She was really drunk. I was so angry at her, and I let her know it. I took her in the shower and tried to sober her up a bit, then packed the bags. I got her into the car and hoped that she would just fall asleep as we headed down the road. She did sort of pass out and fall asleep. When we got to Mojave, it was late in the afternoon. I had to stop for gas. I stopped at a gas station, filled up the truck that I was driving, and then went to use the bathroom. When I came back to the truck, she was gone. We're going to stop there. To be continued. Thank you for listening.